Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us today at New City. As I begin, I want to share with you some of the funniest statements that you have literally heard the entire year, okay? Here's the first one. Um, I bought 10 asparagus at the store, but when I got home, I realized I had 11. It was just a spare, I guess. <laughs> another one? Okay, fine. I'll give you another one. You guys liked it so much. How about this one? A guy walks into a seafood store carrying a crab, and he asks the owner, do you make crab cakes? The owner said, yes, we do. So the guy said, good, because it's his birthday. <laughs> another one. Okay, fine. You asked for it. This one's good. How about this one? A 13-year-old weasel walks into a bar and approaches the counter. The bartender immediately notices the underage weasel. Sir, you look extremely young. I can't serve you even a single beer. Come on, you can't just slide me one, he said. I can't and will not serve to anyone underage. Fine, well, what other things do you have? Well, for non-drinkers, I have tap water and bottled water. I have coffee and I have pop. Which would you like? Pop, goes the weasel. <laughs> that one actually was good. Um, <laughs> now, I think I lied to you, perhaps. Um, maybe those weren't the greatest things that, I've, that you've heard all year, and I set you up that way because today, as we continue our time in Genesis, here's the question we're looking at this morning, okay? What happens when we continually fail God? What happens when we continually fail God? What happens when we promise, God, I'm going to do really good this month or this year. God, I'm going to get my life together. God, I'm going to trust you more. God, I'm going to be more generous. And then we don't. Or what if we do try really hard, but then we, we mess up or we blow it again? I might have lied to you. I might have failed you this morning three times over with some not very funny jokes. But what happens to us when we make these promises to God and we don't measure up? What happens to us when we make these promises to God and we don't hold up our end to the, our, of the bargain? What happens when we continually fail God? That's what our text is going to look at this morning. And so if you have a Bible, would you join with me to Genesis chapter 34? It'll be Genesis 34 and 35. I think we page 29 in the Bibles in front of you if you, have a, if you don't have one. If you don't own one, you can take one of those black ones home. It is our gift to you. Now, we're continuing our time through Genesis. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the story of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, who is the grandson of Abraham. You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, who God calls out, said, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to have kings come from your line, and that through you, the entire world will be blessed. And so we've finally seen, if you've been with us, after Jacob has lied and deceived his way through life for a bit, he's finally recognizing who God is, God's care, God's graciousness, God's protection for him. Uh, last week, if you were with us, he's reconciled with his brother Esau who wanted to kill him originally for how Jacob treated him. And so you're thinking, Jacob's finally getting it. Like he's learning who this God is. He's beginning to trust him. I think we're going to be on a good footing here going forward with Jacob. And then, just like us, we're going to read a story about Jacob that doesn't end so well. He, he's headed in the right direction, but he seems to take a step back. Now, I want to say this as well. If you've been with us in Genesis, we've read some difficult texts uh, throughout Genesis, and uh, today is going to be another difficult one. Uh, we're going to be dealing with some sexual violence in this story. So I just want to let you know, it is a heavy text to use, this, to use as an example of what happens when we continually feel God. But these are the people uh, that God has shown us how he interacts with. And these are the people that God has shown us his love and graciousness toward as we reflect in our own life. And so I just want to say that it's a hard text for us to read this morning, uh, but we're going to see how God responds to us when we continually fail him. And so chapter 34 uh, starts by saying this in verse 1. Leah's daughter Dinah, whom Leah bore to Jacob, so Leah was Jacob's first wife, went out to see some of the young women of the area. When Shechem, the son of Hamar the Hevite, who was the region's chieftain, saw her, he took her and he 
raped her. So again, if you're with us again, just remember, J Joseph has two wives and they have two maidservants. At this point in the story, he has 11 sons and at least one daughter named Dinah. Now, the, he, she comes by the way of Leah, which was Jacob's unfavored wife. And again, we've talked about how all that happened in the last couple of weeks. What's happening here is that if you remember, uh, Jacob and his tra traveling party and his family are back in the, in the land of Canaan. He's back in the promised land. And he, he, he ends up settling in this place called Shechem. Now, it's kind of confusing because the guy in the story, his name is Shechem, and the town region is also called Shechem. Um, but that's where he lives. He buys a plot of land from Hamar, who's the leader here. Uh, so he, him and his family are living not far from the city of Shechem, where this takes place. Now, it's hard to know exactly how big this city or town of Shechem was, but it was likely at this point around 500 people, which was pretty big for the ancient world. Typically, you'd have towns, maybe 100, 150 at most. Bigger than that was considered really big. So it's a town of about 500 people, and uh, that's where Jacob and his family and his kind of people that are with him are living near. Uh, they, are bought, they are living in the land that, that Jacob bought from Hamar, Shechem's father. And it's also important to note that what's going on here wasn't a smart thing to do. So in the ancient culture, a, a woman wouldn't leave like a rural encampment or a tribal area and visit a different one unattended. So typically she would have either her father with her or her brother or a male of her tribe because life was dangerous and people couldn't be trusted. And so what she's doing is not safe. Now, to be clear, we don't know the motivation of, uh, behind why she's out at Shechem by herself. Is she doing this because her family doesn't really care for her? Like they're, they don't really care for her. Is she purposely, uh, maybe for, if you put modern language on it, maybe she's purposely sticking out, if you will, and kind of doing her own thing. We're not, we're not sure why she, why she is at Shechem by herself. Regardless, as we'll see here in a few minutes, uh, Jacob shouldn't be here to begin with. The fact that she's even in this situation is because Jacob is not doing what he promised to God he was going to do. And so she gets taken, she gets assaulted by the leader of the area's son, and then this happens, verse 3. He, this is Shechem, became infatuated with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. He loved the young girl and spoke tenderly to her. Give me this girl as a wife, he told his father. And so after he abuses her, he then speaks lovingly and affectionately to her, and now he wants to marry her. Now, of course, there's no apology or anything for anything that he has done to her uh, so far. Nevertheless, for him, this doesn't seem to be like a small short fling, like he actually wants to take her as his wife. Again, it's helpful for us to know how this would have been perceived in the ancient world. In the ancient world, uh, sexual relations affected women severely. Consensual or not, it does not matter. It was a, a big thing for a woman, right? And so it was a hard thing for a woman to get married if she's already uh, slept with another man, even if it was not her doing or her fault. It was hard for uh, that for a woman to get arranged marriage. Again, arranged marriage was also the norm in the ancient world. And so what would often happen is that uh, premarital sex in some ways would force the hand a little bit of the parents to kind of say, well, we're already slept together and so we should get married. In fact, in Exodus chapter 22 in the Old Testament, uh, there is a provision given to the Israelites that a man can marry a woman that he's slept with, that he's not married to, with a heavy, with a heavy monetary penalty. In other words, the bride price is going to be even higher than it normally is, and without the possibility of divorce if the father of the woman consents. 
So, so a, they, this kind of would force the hand a little bit, and uh, they would not, they'd have to give a big bride price to the family, and the man would never be allowed to divorce her in the future, which in the ancient world, a man could pretty much do whatever he wanted to, and if you're a widow in the ancient world, it wasn't good. I mean, you couldn't go out and get another job. You were kind of left to live in a destitute manner unless your family could take care of you. So I want to be clear, even this provision in Exodus is not God condoning of what's happening here, but it's a way of offering the best case scenario for a woman that she's still going to be protected for. She has to be provided for, and she cannot be divorced by this man. So Shechem uh, takes Dinah. He sleeps with her. He wants to marry her. So he tells his dad, hey, make this happen. And so a marriage contract has to be drawn up. So what happens next? Verse five, Jacob heard that Shechem had defiled his daughter Dinah. But since his sons were with his livestock in the field, he remained silent until they returned. So Jacob hears what happens. At first, he does nothing. Uh, granted, he does, he does need support to really do anything. And so again, they're, they're shepherders. And so there's, you know, the, the, his brother, or his, sorry, his sons could be days away. They could be weeks away. They're not really at the encampment at the time. So he really can't do anything about it. However, he doesn't appear to send word um, quickly to his sons about what happened. His response here seems to be passive. He clearly doesn't like it, but then he doesn't seem to do anything about it. He seems to be saying, well, I'll wait till my sons get home, and then we'll kind of figure out what we want to do. Verse 6, meanwhile, Shechem's father, Hamar, came to speak with Jacob. Jacob's sons returned from the field when they heard about the incident. They were deeply grieved and very angry, for Shechem had committed an outrage against Israel by raping Jacob's daughter, and such a thing should not be Done. And so after this happens, Shechem's father eventually comes and speaks to Jacob to propose marriage between his daughter, Dinah, and Hamar's son, Shechem. Now, Jacob's sons are rightly outraged in a, way, in a manner that Jacob should have been upon hearing the news at what has happened. And, and as we'll see, uh, they don't want this marriage to take place. Again, it's also help for us, helpful for us to know in the ancient world, not only would you say, yeah, this is wrong, this marriage shouldn't happen, it also shouldn't happen for the sake of cohesion and safety for the tribe that Jacob is a part of, right? Safety and security were paramount. There's no police force, like there's no government agency, there's no like human rights, like your tribe is everything. And so if your tribe allows something like this to happen to one of your people and you do nothing about it, it's kind of saying, hey, this can happen to anyone. We don't really care. And so something must be done on behalf of Dinah herself and behalf of Jacob's family and the tribe so that people know we don't condone, we don't allow these sorts of things to happen. So their sons are like, we're going to do something about this. Verse eight, Hamar said to Jacob's sons, my son Shechem, has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. Live with us. The land is before you. Settle here. Move about and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, grant me this favor. I'll give you whatever you say. Demand of me the highest compensation gift and I'll give whatever you ask me. Just give the girl to be my life. So again, Hamar here and Shechem propose marriage with a very exorbitant bride price. Whatever you want, we will give it to you. And what he's essentially doing here is he's offering a treaty among Jacob's tribe in the city of Shechem. Let's make this peace treaty. Let's make this alliance. Then we can intermarry. We can trade with one another. We can live with peace. 
And so what here, what started out as an evil thing, which is a violation of Dinah, who, by the way, is, oh, we'll see in a second, is still being held captive in the city. Like, she's still stuck there. It's like, she's not even home. Now, it even, it turns into God's covenant with Abraham being turned into jeopardy. So not only do you have Dinah's incident to deal with, but if Jacob allows this alliance with these Canaanites for them to intermarry into what will eventually happen if this takes place, for them to worship the gods of the Canaanite gods and to take up the lifestyle of the Canaanites that they would not be a people set apart by God. This turns into a terrible proposition all the way around. Now, you might be saying, well, why would Jacob consent to this if he kind of knows like that's not what he's supposed to do? Well, the reason he would consent to this is because the short-term gains for Jacob and his family and his tribe for coming into an alliance with the people of Shechem would have been great. This would have increased their resources. There'd be more people to trade with. This would increase their safety because now they're allied with a city near them. And where they're actually, if you actually look historically where they're located, this is, Jacob's actually living, his tribe is actually living in a really strategic area where there's lots of trade routes nearby. And so by him forming an alliance, really digging into the community there, this will bring a lot of short-term benefits to his tribe. So verse 13, but Jacob's sons answered Shechem and his father Hamar deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. So what's interesting here is that Jacob's sons are now going to respond to Hamar and Shechem, not Jacob himself, who's supposed to be the patriarch, the leader of the family. And they, just like their father in the past, as we'll see in a second, are going to come up with a plan of deceit against the people of Shechem, though their plan is going to surpass any plan of deceit that Jacob has ever done up until this point. And so uh, what happens next is that the, the brothers respond, and they tell Shechem and Hamar that they cannot give their sister to an uncircumcised man. So part of the covenant with God for the Israelites is that they were to be circumcised as infants, and so they say, we can't do this. And so they come to an agreement with the people of Shechem that Shechem and the whole town, not just Shechem who's going to marry Dinah, but the whole town is going to be circumcised. They're going to circumcise the entire town. Then they can intermarry. They can be on good terms with one another. And so that's what happens. Uh, the, the leader of the town, Hamar, uh, convinces all the men in his city to get uh, circumcised. The men of Shechem all get circumcised. Now, I want to be clear. The reason they do this is not because they love Hamar's son so much and they just like want to give him a bride of his dreams. The reason that they do this is because, again, they view it as an alliance. And in fact, in verse 23, Hamar tells them that this will be advantageous for them. In other words, let's come into an agreement with them. Let's uh, build up our own tribe. And then eventually what we'll probably do is just actually take them over and take everything that they have. And so they're, they're doing this for their own gain. So it happens, they, they all get circumcised, they, they say, hey, again, it's also kind of maybe weird for us in an individualistic society in the ancient world, everything was the collective, what's best for the tribe, or what's best for you, and so again, this, there's a lot of advent, advantages for the tribe to do this, so all the men agree, uh, Hamar has them all circumcised. Now, verse 24 says this, all the men who had come into the city gates listened to Hamar and his son Shechem. And all those men were circumcised, 25. On the third day, when they were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, these are also uh, from Leah, so they're her full brothers, uh, Dinah's brothers, uh, took their swords, went into the unsuspected city, and killed every male. They killed Hamar and his son Shechem with their swords, took Dinah from Shechem's house, and went away. 
Jacob's sons came to the slaughter and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field. They captured all their possessions, dependents, and wives, and plundered everything in the houses. So what you see here is that you have two of Dinah's brothers, Simeon and Levi. Now, it could have just been them, or the text could be saying that they kind of led a band of people, like they were the ones in charge. They're the one who came up with this plan. And they go in and they kill all the men in the city of Shechem while they're essentially incapacitated, while they're not in a place to fight back. Now, it appears that their primary motivation for doing this was to revenge what happened to their sister. But then likely, after they revenge what happens to their sister and they stand up for the tribe, they also then plunder the city. They take everything, including the women and children of that city, who presumably are now going to become a part of Jacob's tribe as well. So this thing goes from evil to even, I mean, I, mean, I, mean, I don't, it's atrocious. I mean, this is going from bad to worse. Verse 30, then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, so Jacob's dad says to Simeon and Levi, there's his sons, you have brought trouble on me, making me odious to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. We are few in number. If they unite against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. So, so Jacob's response here, uh, it's, he's, he's rightly disgusted. But his motivation for his disgust is still off. His primary concern is not about what happened to Dinah or the evil that his sons committed in and of itself, but rather how it's going to reflect on him and his household and his tribe. Right? His problem is not necessarily so much that they did this because that was wrong, but how it looks. Right? And of course, he is now afraid for their lives as he knows that the land that they are living in, once these other towns and cities find out about what happens, they're going to come and attack us and kill us for what they did, for what Simeon, Simeon and Levi did. That's his primary motivation, not being killed, not that what they did was actually evil. But then verse 31, it says this, but they answered, so his sons, Simeon and Levi answered, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Right? Should we allow someone to take um, our sister and just buy her off like a prostitute? In fact, even the wording in verse 31 is significant. So Dinah here is talked about as your, your daughter uh, in verse 31. Or sorry, in verse 31, he's talking, yeah, he's talking about our sister, rather. In verse 1, he's, uh, Dinah is referred to as your daughter. So it goes from Jacob's daughter uh, as her primary mode of identification to her son's sister. Clearly, what this is showing us is a schism in the family has occurred. That uh, Simeon, or at least Leah's uh, sons, are having, have a lot of issues with their dad. Also, as we get closer to the Joseph story, if those of you that are familiar, this explains some of the background behind the tension between Joseph and his older brothers, because Joseph is the son of Rebekah, who's the favored wife, and Leah's, who is the dis discarded, disfavored wife, her sons have a lot of issues with their dad. Again, remember, Dinah is the daughter of Leah. Uh, Simeon and Levi are also the sons of Leah, who was the unloved wife. And so his sons argue that their sister should not be sold to these people. And it's no longer your daughter. It is now our sister. So this is terrible. And then it says this, verse 1, chapter 30, uh, 35. God said to Jacob, get up, go to Bethel, and settle there. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. In other words, after these events, after the sexual violence, after the uh, massacre of the whole town, God tells Jacob that they need to leave. 
It is time for Jacob to fulfill the vow that he made to God back in Genesis chapter 28. So in Genesis 28, Jacob's on the run from his life for his life. He's fleeing Esau who wants to kill him. And he's also trying to find a wife from where his relatives live, some 500 miles from where he grew up in the land of Canaan. So God reveals himself to Jacob. He promises to bless him. He promises, him to, he promises Jacob, hey, I'm going to, in the future, I'm going to bring you back to Bethel, Bethel where you're meeting me right now. And when that happens, you're going to submit to me as your God. God, and you're going to offer me a, a, a tithe and worship me. And Jacob's response when God rescues him and promises all these blessings is what? Well, if you do that, if and only if you do that, then I'll worship you. Right? His response isn't great. But now he's learning and he's growing and God has done everything. He's been faith, nothing but faithful to Jacob, even though he doesn't deserve it. He's given tons of kids, tons of wealth, and yet Jacob didn't return to Bethel. And so now he's calling him back to return to Bethel so that Jacob would do what he promised he would do. Verse two, so Jacob said to his family and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your clothes. We must go, get up and go to Bethel. I will build an altar there to, their, to the God who answered me in my day of distress. He has been with me everywhere I have gone. So what's happening here for Jacob and the people, his family and the tribe that is with them, he's telling them that God cannot be seen as one of, or even the strongest of all gods, which is the typical worldview back then. Everyone has their own gods, their family gods, their geographical gods. But Jacob is saying, no, we're going to leave all these behind. Our God, Yahweh, is not only the strongest, he's the only. So everybody rid yourselves of any foreign idols that you have and prepare to repent, to sacrifice, and to worship the true God. That's what we're going to do. Verse four, then they gave Jacob all their foreign gods and their earrings, and Jacob hid them under the oak near Shechem. So they hand over their idols, they hand over their earrings. The earrings, we're not sure what that's supposed to represent. Perhaps they were maybe pagan in style, um, or maybe there's just something about the earrings that represented worship to these false gods. And so the point here is that they're getting rid of any and everything that can be attributed to any other God, but Yahweh, they're going to set themselves apart and they're going to worship this God differently than the Canaanites and the other people worship their gods. Verse five, it says this, when they set out, <clears throat> a terror from God came over the cities around them and they did not pursue Jacob's sons. So Jacob and all who were with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. Jacob built an altar there, there and called the place El Bethel because it was there that God had revealed himself to him when he was fleeing from his brother. So they make this journey. They get back to Bethel before this happens. Jacob's party were known essentially as peaceful shepherds. Nobody really did anything to them. They're not known that way anymore. I mean, they took out an entire city. And yet God, again, protects Jacob and his family, and he stops anybody from attacking them on their journey. Yet again, what we see is God is gracious and kind, though the family that he has covenanted with is deeply undeserving. I mean, they are deeply undeserving of God to continue to protect them. And so one of the things we see from this text, from the life of Jacob, and even from this text in particular, again, as we're thinking about what happens when we continually fail God, well, one of the things that, that should stick out to us is this, that God only rescues sinful people. God only and ever rescues 
sinful people. You have stories of this with Abraham, where he was faithful in times that he wasn't. Isaac, times where he was faithful, times that he wasn't. Jacob, a lot of times where he was unfaithful, then he starts to get faithful, and then this happens. And then his sons, like even his sons, like continue the lineage of doing terrible things and not honoring God. In fact, check this out, Levi, so Simeon and Levi. Levi, who was one of the men leading the charge to slaughter the city. Well, well Jacob has 12 sons. He's going to end up having 12 sons. He gets his name chained to Israel which we saw last week. So this is where you get Israelite, the Israelites. And the 12 tribes come from the 12 tribes of Jacob. Well, Levi is going to be the father of the Levites, which are the priestly tribe. They're the ones that do the rituals for forgiveness and repentance for the people that are supposed to shadow and then are fulfilled in Jesus. Yet Levi is the one who leads the slaughter. So the one who's supposed to be the, the head of the family that's going to purify and keep Israel and right standing with God, he's the one that says, we're going to slaughter all these people of this entire town and take their women and children. That's the one that's going to be in charge of the priestly line of the Israelites. And so, so here's what I know. Um, we can play the comparison game. So sometimes when you hear the gospel that God loves you where you are, and he forgives you and he offers you grace, what we often think, like if we're, if we're self-reflective, like, Man, here's all the terrible things I've done in my life. Like, I've done X, Y, and Z. Like, here's all the reasons I don't deserve to be forgiven, right? I've done so much worse than other people. So maybe God can forgive other people, but he cannot forgive me because of all the things that I've done. And so if that's you, man, if you ever think, I mean, I just don't deserve God's grace. Um, and you, because of the, I mean, you don't deserve God's grace. But if you ever think, man, I just, let's play the comparison game. Like, I'm so much worse than other people. God should forgive them, but not me. Well, let me ask you this. Have you ever plotted, planned, and killed an entire town and taken all the women, children, and resources? And check this out. Even if you did. Even if you did. There's grace for you. Listen, this is why the, the gospel is offensive. The gospel is offensive because no matter how evil or sinful or wrong you are, there is an opportunity for you to experience the grace and the mercy of God. That you, are, you have the ability to be rescued by God. Here's the reality, okay? The only people God saves are his enemies. The only people God saves are people who do not deserve it. Jacob, the family that God has covenant with, is sinful, and yet he rescues them time and time and time again, and so the invitation is the same for us. God only rescues sinful people. And so what happens next is they, they're in Bethel. God again appears to Jacob when they get there. He explains the covenant. Uh, he tells them that he will give him this land that they're living in. One day it's going to be his, his whole like, family tribe. They're going to own the land they're living in. Uh, the, the, Jacob's going to be made into a great nation. That kings are going to come from his offspring. And then Jacob anoints the area as sacred. He worships God and he praises him. After that, Rachel, his favorite wife, has a son named Benjamin, but she dies in childbirth. So she ends up having two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. She dies in childbirth. So Isaac buries her, names his son Benjamin. Of course, Joseph and Benjamin, because they're the only sons that come from Rachel, are favored, but compared to all the other brothers that uh, Jacob, or sorry, that Joseph and Benjamin have, they're favored because they came from Rebekah. And then it happens, this says this, verse 21. <clears throat> Israel set out again and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel was living in that region, Reuben, so this is the firstborn of uh, Jacob. So Leah, his wife, has his firstborn, first four sons before he has any other kids. Leah, the eldest, 
or sorry, Reuben, the eldest, went in and slept with his father, father's concubine, Billah. And Israel heard about it. So Billah was the, the maidservant of Rachel who has died. After she dies, Reuben, his firstborn, comes in and sleeps with Billah. Now, again, if you've been with us, sexual violence is often an act of dominance. Rachel dies. <clears throat> Reuben sleeps with his maidservant. And then we're going to see later in Genesis 49 when Jacob is on his deathbed and he's kind of giving the blessings to his kids um, that Reuben is actually going to lose his place as the firstborn, the rights and the privileges of the firstborn because of what he has done here. So he tries to usurp the authority of Jacob. Again, the, the family is already broken. He says, I'm going to take Billah. I'm going to sleep with her. I guess it doesn't work because Jacob's still going to stay, you know, as, as the one in charge. And Reuben's going to be disowned as the one having the rights of the firstborn. And then, and then it gets a list. And then after this happens, it, uh, Genesis 35 gives us a list of all 12 sons of Jacob. It says these are going to be the 12 Israelite tribes. They're going to come from Jacob. And then 35 ends by saying this in verse 27. Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, when Abram and Abraham, where Abraham and Isaac had stayed. Isaac lived 180 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. His son Esau and Jacob buried him. So Esau, Isaac, their father, dies. Jacob and Esau unite, reunite one last time to bury their father, just like Isaac and Ishmael reunited to bury Abraham. And then I, Jacob is buried with Abraham and Sarah and his wife, uh, and oh, sorry, uh, Rebecca. Why don't we try that? Yeah, Isaac is buried with Abraham and Sarah in the kind of essentially the family burial plot in the land of Canaan. Now, what I want to point out here as we kind of read these two stories is what I mentioned in the earlier, uh, at the beginning of 35, 34, and it's easy to miss, okay? One of the things that, that we see happening in this text is this, that small compromises can lead to big sins. Small compromises can lead to big sins. And even think about maybe our own failures and sin struggles in our own life. So again, in Genesis chapter 28, when God first appeared to Jacob, even though Jacob didn't ask for it, didn't deserve it, God in his kindness appears to him. Uh, he says all these great things. And Jacob, what does Jacob do? He vows to return to Bethel, build a house of worship, and sacrifice to God there if God comes through on all of his promises. Yet God comes through on all of his promises to Jacob. And when Jacob returns to the land, instead of going to Bethel, he goes to an area called Succoth uh, near a city called Shechem and builds a house and settles there. Now, it's important to note, he wasn't just like passing through Shechem. It's not like he was staying there for the grazing season or staying there for winter. If you actually look at the timestamps of like different ages and different things that take place, uh, we can see that Jacob actually stayed in Shechem for about five to 10 years. So it seems quite, 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 quite clear that Jacob was planning to stay in Shechem for a long time. Like he was making his house and his home. That is where he was going to stay. And then after the slaughter of the Shechem, the city of Shechem, God directs Jacob to go to Bethel where he should have gone all along. And then the text doesn't explicitly say this. But I think it should bring to us the story of Abraham and Lot earlier in Genesis. If you remember that story, Abraham says to Lot, you can go east or west. You can pick where you want to go. Whichever, the part, whichever land looks better for you, you take your flock and your people, and I'll go to the other one. And it said Lot took the area that looked good. He took and saw the place that he thought was best, and it ended in disaster for Lot. 
Now, it doesn't say that Jacob took it, saw and took the land of Shechem. But what happens here is he clearly stays in a place that was advantageous for trade. He's going to partner with and align with a city, a Canaanite city. He chose what looked good. And then it led to disaster, right? Dinah is assaulted and abused. Uh, Jacob's family is fractured. Mass killing takes place. And it all starts with Jacob settling in an area that seemed good to him. But it is not what he promised God would do if God made good on his promises to him. And so I think just as we sit and reflect our own lives, as we read this text, perhaps the question we should ask ourselves is this, where am I compromising with God? Where am I compromising with God? Where am I acting like Jacob? Like he's making progress, he's trusting the Lord, he's worshiping him, but he made a compromise and it led to literally deadly consequences. Right, for me, right, is it, is it a relationship, a sexual or otherwise, that is not wise? Am I compromising in the workplace with a coworker that is not my spouse? Am I putting off making a decision that I know God is leading me towards and that I know God is wanting me to do? Am I hiding sin from a spouse or from a friend, right? Am I going somewhere where I know, hey, this is probably where it's going to lead, but I think I can still handle it right now, so I'm good. Listen, even confessing your sin is difficult and hard, but it is not as hard as what happens when, when that sin catches up to you. Where am I compromising with God? Where have I promised God, hey, I'm going to do this, but then God came through, God was faithful, things are looking pretty good in my life, so I think actually I'm going to continue to coast. I think I'm going to stay where I am. Where am I compromising with God that can potentially lead to disastrous results if I'm not going to be honest? Because here's the reality. If you do that, you will fail God again. I will fail God Again, and so again, the question for us this morning is what happens when we do that? What happens when we're like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and his sons who continually fail God? Well, how does God respond to Jacob? Uh, God responds to Jacob with the same invitation that he gives us, and that's this, that you cannot outrun the grace of God. You can't outrun it. The story of Jacob is screaming this to us, right? I think, in fact, it's easy for us to be uncomfortable with God's grace toward Jacob because we ain't Jacob. Why would you save him after he lied to his dad and he cheated his brother twice and he marries two women and he has, sleeps with two other women, has all these kids and all these different women and, and yet you still, if we, we saw a couple weeks ago, like he increased his flock and multiplied his sheep and he protected him on the way to Shechem and then after they, they massively murder and, and kill his entire city, he protect, God protects them again as they travel to Bethel. Like this makes us uncomfortable because we're not Jacob. And so while Jacob's sons, right, negotiate and come to an agreement with Hamar, like it gets worse with circumcision. You know what gets worse about that story? Is that Jacob doesn't stop it. And Jacob does not know that Levi and Simeon had plans to kill the entire town. Jacob was going to allow this alliance to go through, which means that he was allowing God's covenant to his people to bless his family, and then not just his family, but the entire world through the Messiah named Jesus to be ruined if he was going to intermarry and become ingratiated in the culture and the gods and their way of life. Jacob was going to let that happen, and yet God rescues him again. He rescues him again. And so I just, I want to close with this. It's worth noting that even Jacob failed time and time again, that after all of this, Jacob did eventually return to Bethel and he did eventually worship and sacrifice to God. In other words, while Jacob made a lot of poor decisions, he responded appropriately. 
He responded correctly and said, this is the invitation for you and for me. How will we respond to the grace that we cannot outrun? Will we reject it or will we accept it? Those are the options. Will we reject it or will we accept it? The good news of the gospel is that God was faithful to Abraham and to Isaac and Jacob when they didn't deserve it so that he could send his Messiah Jesus to be faithful to us when we don't deserve it. That, Jacob, that Jesus took the sins of the world, lived a perfect death, died the death that we deserve, and then three days later displayed his power over sin and darkness by rising again and inviting us into his kingdom by trusting and repenting him first, not by promising to do better. That you and I are invited into the kingdom of God by the grace of God, not by our efforts. Because here's the deal. You can reject God's grace, but you cannot outrun it. So you and I can either accept and respond or reject. And listen, I, I know maybe you're walking in here and this life, this week has been tough. This month has been tough. You've blown it last night. Maybe your football team lost yesterday. You're doing all these things you promised you wouldn't do, right? And you're coming in here. It's like, don't strike me with lightning, right? You're coming in here like, here's the deal. You're here because God loves you, cares for you, and he wants you to know that you cannot outrun the grace that he has for you. Man, no matter who you and I are, man, again, if we want to play the comparison game, you probably haven't murdered an entire town of people, and God still gave them grace, and he still gives it to you. God is faithful when we are not. He invites us in when we do not. That's why we sing. I mean, it's kind of weird, right? Like, in our culture today, we don't publicly sing anywhere. But we do in church, why? Because God is worthy of our praise because he's faithful and he's kind and he's good and he invites all of us into his family even in the midst of our deep sin and our dark brokenness. You cannot outrun the grace of God. He was faithful to Jacob, he was faithful to his descendants and he is faithful to us. This is the God that we worship. Would you pray with me?